Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, this is the, the Standard Times um, editorial board, and we're here for the annual point-in-time uh, count uh, of the homeless um, population in New Bedford. And uh, as is our custom, we'll introduce ourselves around the table. I'm Jack Spillane, the editorial page editor of the Standard Times. Uh, I'm Reverend David Lima with the uh, Interchurch Council, but I'm chair of the Homeless Service Providers Network in the Bedford's Continuum of Care. I'm Jennifer Clark. I'm the deputy director for the City of New Bedford's Department of Planning, Housing, and Community Development. I work with the Homeless Service Providers Network in providing support, and I'm working on the uh, point-in-time count for which we're here today. I am uh, Peter Muse, uh, President and CEO of First Citizens Federal Credit Union and Executive Board Member of the uh, Homeless Service Providers Network as well. I'm Jerry Boggs. I'm Senior Multimedia Copy Editor. And Linda Roy is here with us uh, doing our video. So um, we have a, a very cold day here to, to, to talk about this subject. Uh, why don't you start us off, um, uh, David? Well, the point in time count, uh, as we know, is where uh, HUD mandated. Uh, it's actually mandated to be every at least once every two years. New Bedford uh, continues to do it every year. And it's a major effort uh, that uh, uh, gets done in the city where we actually look to count those that are classified as homeless by HUD. Uh, classifications do change occasionally. so. Uh, we have to always be up on exactly what's going on. Um, and we count both the sheltered in, in, in programs and the unsheltered, those that are on the streets. Uh, it's mandated to be once a year, usually in January. Uh, each community can adjust that according to what their capabilities are. Ours will be January 30th, so it'll start at 2 p.m. We'll have a kickoff at City Hall at 1 p.m., but uh, at 2 p.m., uh, headquartered at uh, PACA, where everybody will meet, uh, get their assignments, and then go out into the community to locate those that are homeless. Uh, Jen Clark is spearheading the effort out of the Office of Housing and Community Development. It's very important because uh, it, it's, it's, it's difficult if we do this correctly. Uh, we actually can only count people that we see, that we have in hand, um, which means that uh, depending on the weather, uh, weather like we had yesterday, you would think that people would be all in shelters. Uh, and I know Peter has statistics that can uh, talk about how we're sheltering people, especially in the bad weather. Uh, but we've had over 40 people in the shelter at a time. And believe it or not, last night when I called to see how they made out with that super cold that we had from Sunday into Monday and continued again yesterday, we only had 25 people in shelter. We know we've got more folks out there. And uh, to be legitimate in our count, which of course we always are, uh, we have to actually locate these folks and uh, be able to talk to them, uh, do a small survey with them. And uh, that is how the monies, that's how the policy gets created uh, from HUD. When we go to do our grants, it's those kind of numbers that uh, dictate uh, how HUD is going to do appropriations. And so it's extremely important for us 
to be able to do this right. And it's just um, so disturbing to me that, that, that there, you know that there's more people um, out there and that they're not all in the shelters. Where, where are they? Let me, in, let me, in let me let you a, a specific that will help okay. with that. And, uh, um, so David's right. Uh, there's been a couple of occasions where when we've had over 40 people, 41, 42, on three different, three different occasions. Um, when we had that many, the temperatures were 15 and 20 degrees. Okay, so pretty, pretty cold, pretty, pretty cold. Um, the 20th, we know, the wind chill for the 20th got to be 17 degrees below. 17 degrees below the wind chill. Uh, three degrees and 18 miles an hour wind is, <laughs> comes out to 17 below. We only had 25 people in the overflow that night. And um, we were able to keep the overflow, that's the decision, was to keep the overflow open a little bit during the day as well. Um, yesterday, uh, knowing how cold it was, there were only 16 people in there. Now, the six of us can say, we will go indoors because the way our mindsets are and the way our needs and desires are, um, I am not a professional on this side, but what it tells me is that some of these folks have issues, whether it be mental issues or addiction issues, that supersede cold and supersede a cold of negative 17 degrees. Um, therein lies our biggest issue. Uh, our, our biggest issue. There's, there's, there's no, doubt, no doubt about it. When David asked me yesterday, we were getting the numbers in, and I said, "Bye, good morning." My my thought was the place would be excuse, packed. Excuse me, Peter. Just for those yeah. who don't know, this is um, I'm drawing a blank. Lisa Stratton. Lisa Stratton, world famous. I know very Lisa well Stratton. what her name is. Yeah. General manager. General manager. Yeah. Your paycheck's being held. You know the Um So. I, I just wanted to kind of throw that out as a frame of reference for us. As cold as it is today, thinking about that and, and yesterday, th there's, a, there's a bigger issue. To help that bigger issue requires money. And, and, and money follows data. Data is number counts. Why is it so important that we get the number right? Um, we, we need the resources, and the resources are not just to house these people. That's such a key, which is where the program com programs come in. Uh, so I'm just trying to connect. Yeah. I, I'm trying to connect dots like some of you. I don't work with this population. I don't do this all. You know, I, I try to come in and, and listen to where it goes, and I'm learning from these folks um, where the bigger issue really is. Housing them only gives you a point in time to face some folks and try to help out. That's not the bigger issue, right? Money is necessary for some of the bigger issues. So I just kind of wanted to give you a thought of what? 17 degree below zero. Why are there only 16 people sitting inside? It doesn't make any sense, so, right? So the ones who are not at the shelter through paranoia or alcoholism or drug addiction, whatever their issues are, where are they? Well, I think two, two, two factors. Uh, and Jen, jump in whenever you want, please. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but there's two things that I think happen. Some of these folks do have family and friends in the area. And I think that uh, uh, 
Most don't, but some do. And through exasperation, whatever you want to say, uh, a lot of times they're just bought at the door. The bottom line, though, is when you have such extremes, you know, I've known folks that will take somebody in for a night uh, or two. So you get the couch surfing and things like that. But the other thing that does occur is you have some resilient people. You also have uh, uh, people that think they're helping folks who I, I have seen $200 uh, sleeping bags handed out, the, the sub-zero degree sleeping bags. You got people who think they're helping. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, anything we can do to keep people alive is, is important. But I think sometimes in the doing good, we perpetuate a problem rather than get people to come in. Uh, it's, it's a tough thing to balance uh, all the way around. But we also know over the last, you know, uh, in my lifetime, there have been more than one body found in this city frozen uh, in a field, on a street, dead, because they did not survive a night. Uh, that's the battle that we continue to fight is to not only uh, do what's necessary to build that safety net, but to do what's necessary to educate the folks that are out there that there is some help, they don't have to live like this, to be able to help others understand that if we work together, it's not just helping someone, enabling them to stay out in the woods so they continue with a problem they have, but to help them get into services that they need. Um, that's, that's an important aspect of all of this. Um, but one that, you know, sometimes the only thing you can see is the need right in front of you at that moment. And so you help that moment. And quite frankly, uh, and this is where I'll rail against society, the, to do real efficient counting, when you do real good counting and you realize that there's more need out there, that actually the numbers have increased, that can penalize us from HUD because they can turn around and say, well, you're not doing your job in reducing homelessness. Uh, the country, politicians, uh, uh, you know, whenever they want to lower the numbers of homeless, they change the definition. We've seen that in what little time I've been around, we've seen that once or twice. If you change the definition, then you can uh, say, we're lowering homelessness. And actually, I'll just back up on that too. The all of this and all of the federal effort around homelessness comes out of the McKinney-Vento Act. And that act has, uh, it's really bifurcated into two very distinct components. One is around HUD and shelter, and one is around schools. And we know we have McKinney-Vento liaisons that are doing tremendous work in the schools. The thing is, there are two very different definitions uh, as to how the federal government defines homelessness in those two sectors. To be homeless, to get into a shelter, you cannot be doubled up. You cannot be putting yourself up in a motel for the night. You can't use your uh, SSDI uh, check to help you stay somewhere. You can't do that and be considered homeless. You're considered housed at that moment. If you are a child in the school system and you are doubled up, if you're couch surfing, if you're uh, any of those conditions, you are absolutely considered homeless. So the school department's numbers, which we are privileged to get a report every month at our meeting, um, through Julie Medor, the registrar at the schools, we see that there are tremendous numbers that they have, 1,200. So you're saying, well, why don't we have that same number? Why isn't that commensurate with 
the number of homeless because there are two very different definitions that we have to go on. So for the count that we do for folks that are experiencing homelessness, we have to look at that literal homelessness that one would think of sleeping in a car, sleeping in places not meant for human habitation, for all those elements, for people that are in a doorway. But for those that are, when it's particularly cold, they have an opportunity to you know, just bunk with a friend that night or stay somewhere. HUD doesn't consider that homeless. That's not someone that we can, for the purpose <coughs> of this count, include them in those numbers. So, so we had a guy for a while, and he died um, at the bus station, who was Mr. sitting Snow. at the bus station. Um, I talked to him a number of times. Mm-hmm. He was not all there. And um, one time the police chief told me that he had a Social Security check coming in yes. every month, and he would go down and stay at the motel for a day or two, mm-hmm. uh, and then he would go back on to the bus station with his sleeping bags and his different things. He would not be considered homeless? He was considered homeless when he was actually sleeping on the streets. When he went to a motel for that moment, for that evening, okay. he would not have been considered homeless. But yes, if you are you know, sleeping on the streets, that's absolutely considered homeless under right. any definition right so if the count took place the night that he was in a motel he would not have been part of the count okay is there given that definition and and kind of the point in time nature of this is there a strategy to scheduling it do you all do the scheduling yes i mean that's that's an excellent point hud's requirement um as as david had mentioned is once every two years we have to do it by statute within the last 10 days of january Mm-hmm. when we do it. It has to be within the last 10 days. Uh, HUD and on their website, they articulate a number of reasons for that justification, but I think one of those is that uh, when one receives any kind of benefit check at the outset of the month, they tend to run out by the last 10 days, so they want to get as clear and as accurate a picture of folks that are in need at that moment. If you go out on the 4th or 5th of the month, a number of people will you know, take advantage of the resources that they have at that time of the month and they will, you know, try to stay somewhere or help to give their friend a couple of bucks and stay with them or stay in a hotel, whatever it takes. By the end of the month, resources become very, very tight and you end up with folks on the street. So they're trying to get uh, that kind of accuracy in account. Why January? Because it seems like, you know, what you said about kind of the cold, maybe some people can find a couch to sleep on. It seems like January would depress the numbers as opposed to maybe July when there might be more people in camps or... It, it's philosophically that's something that, that HUD has you know wrestled with, and I think that there have been... Um, th- there's a lot of policy debate uh, at the federal level uh, about when that should be. It has been in January for quite a long time. The very first count that the city did, uh, we did back in, uh, I think it was 2000, I went out with Sister Rose, and we did it in March. Uh, it was the middle of March because we knew it was still... It was winter, it was a tough time, it was cold, um, but we didn't go out in in January. But then HUD came in and said it needs to be at this time. So uh, I I can't speak to all of the philosophical reasons that they've selected, but they're they're pretty clear that that's when we have to do it. Do you think it depresses the... Uh, Of course, the minister, who's never cynical, uh, (laughs) may think that uh, there may be a reason for, you know, hiding uh, numbers. But that's only the non-cynical yeah, part but, of it. But, but still, this is true. Uh, we never hear him being cynical, by the way. Okay, so, uh, so he's probably right there. Yeah. At least we don't listen. I don't even. I don't Nobody listens. So, um, <laughs> but one of the other parts about data, okay, and now granted we're, we're, we're talking about human beings here, but one of the other parts about data is trend analysis, all right? So if you start to move this around, then you've lost 
some, you've lost the history, the trend analysis. What's homelessness in July versus homelessness in January? Um, you know, will you have more folks around here homeless? There's water, there's beaches, there's a, uh, you know, I, I don't know. But from a data analysis person saying the consistency of some element is important. Um, whether they made the wrong choice in the, in the beginning, uh, sometimes starts to outweigh making the move uh, as to where it would, where it would go. Um, and, and, and what, what you hear is, some of it is true, some of it is anecdotal information, is that folks travel, right? So uh, they may go to, they may be more in Massachusetts in the summertime, and some folks can get a bus ticket and be other places, uh, uh, wherever it happens to go, wherever it is. So I, 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 I don't have a clue. But for what it's worth, when it's, you know, bitterly cold and you look at why are you doing in January, um, last year when we did it, we had a full house and we had 30 that were at the overflow shelter, the emergency shelter. So folks that typically would have, you know, we would have seen on the streets, they were counted anyway yeah. uh, because they were in shelter. So we were able to, cap, you know, still capture those numbers. And, you know, we do go to other places where folks are, regardless of the time of the year. So we're in the emergency room at, you know, at the hospital. You know, we're at different places and go to food pantries and just any number of places that are targeted specifically. So regardless of the time of the year, we, we really work hard to capture all of the... And regardless of the population you're counting, it might be a lot easier for us to get volunteers in July than it is <laughs> January 30th. Uh, wet, I mean, cold or, I mean, you're still counting if it snows, right? I mean, inclement weather. We did it yeah. a couple of ago. We can have, if we, if we have, uh, I think there was... Um, uh, a number of years ago, there was such a substantive storm that went through the whole area that HUD allowed, a, a, you know, a, a delay, and they allowed us to do it the first week of February if we wanted to. I can tell you that in doing, a, we did a quick survey of the other uh, 15 continuums throughout the Commonwealth, um, and that includes Boston, Cambridge, and the balance of state, and uh, I, I believe it was every single one's doing it on January 30th. So we have that 10 days, but everyone sort of picked that date. So uh, the city of Fall River and the balance of Bristol County, which is under something called GB Catch, the Greater Attleboro Taunton Continuum. Um, all those groups within Bristol County are all doing it on the 30th. So these counts are, you know, somewhat regularized. But like Peter said, that data and trending, you know, we tried to do a nice little report every year to look at what those numbers are telling us because that's all about the relevancy of folks' lives and to sort of shift that. You know, it's it's working now in this regard. So. And though you have some people do shift because of weather, um, predominantly most people stay close to what they know. Uh, home, friends, you know, places that they've occupied before. There's this thought process that, you know, come wintertime, all the homeless, you know, catch a bus. There may be somebody that does that. Uh, and aside of uh, an effort that did occur in Chicago a little while back, where some businesses actually gave folks that were homeless in their area uh, one-way tickets to Hawaii. Uh, you know, it. Uh, you know, you don't see that kind of shifting. Yeah. That backfired on the, them. Too. The Cape tried yeah, to do it, it, it in it, Bedford. You, you definitely had. <laughs> heck, if I had found out, I might have gone there to get a one-way ticket to <laughs> Hawaii. Ticket. But, uh, uh, so, so. but, but yeah, it, uh, the fact is, most of the people that we have on our streets in our shelters are folks that have ties to the South Coast whether it's direct to Bedford or not. They have ties here, they've worked here, they've uh, been connected here. Uh, and, you know, so somehow they've got supports here. Um, 
our community is is as much as it struggles for a variety of things has a huge heart and there's a lot of folks that want to help from uh, different nonprofits different groups I, I know groups that get created I, I got one right now that uh, they started uh, uh, collecting coats for adults uh, she contacted me to know where to distribute them through uh, I gave her two phone numbers and she called me again Friday saying you opened up a can of worms on me uh, you know there's so much need now we're doing a drive for, for, for children's coats and uh, you know they're looking to start their own 501c3 just to create that you know and so you try to direct some of these folks to others that are already doing it but that's the thing you get this compassion that gets started and people become I, I don't think people really know the depth of the situation and uh, when they get involved, and, and that's the other thing that's incredible about the point in time count, and, uh, and I'm sure Jen can speak to it uh, as well as, as Peter, uh, is the amount of help that comes out, the volunteers that, that run the gamut from folks that are very well, well to do that wanna, just wanna offer help, and then all of a sudden they get this education. They don't realize people are living like this. They don't realize people have such loss. And when you sit down and you talk with some of these folks and you realize, you know, not everybody has got a substance abuse problem. Somebody had a job. They were living paycheck to paycheck, and all of a sudden they were living in their car. And, you know, now they're having a struggle just getting, getting their first and last months together. They're, they're struggling just to stay alive, to stay supported. Uh, but being able to get that hand so that they can get back on their feet uh, and, and then you have a situation. And some people, once they've been in that situation for a little while, end up staying in that situation. We've seen people and talked to people. Our first event for Connect, we had a gentleman that we'd come to realize had been living in the woods behind Price Wright, out near the railroad tracks up in the North End. He's been out there for nine years. Nine years. Okay. Stop to think about that, you know. He hadn't been in a building. He hadn't even been in a building because he had gotten paranoid about being inside buildings now. Now think about the weather we've had over those nine years. Think about that year where we had 10 feet of snow in one year. And they were out there, you know. It's amazing. I think one, one, one thing I'll, I'll um, it would be very important to try to get this squared away is that uh, David's right, the, the majority of these folks are connected to this area, right? And, and there's a belief that, you know, uh, they're coming from Cape Cod, they're coming from Taunton, whatever it happens to be. My piece of evidence, Christmas Day, we were open Christmas Day, the overflow shelter was open Christmas Day, it was 15 degree wind chill. There were five people in the overflow shelter. We've had 42 at the high, okay? Where were they all? And I don't understand this. I brought it up, and you know what came back to me was, well, well, it's Christmas. People have a bigger heart for their family members or acquaintances that are having difficulty. It's Christmas. There's a spirit where it goes. Um, can, you, can you just briefly explain the overflow shelter for folks who might not know what the, it is? The, the, uh, the, the New Bedford overflow shelter is, is held down at the Sister Rose house, physically at the Sister Rose house. The con there's a contract between the city and Catholic Social Services to open the overflow shelter um, 
when it, when it uh, uh, the overflow shelter, when it's 28 degrees or below, the city's contract pays for 20 degrees and below. The difference between 20 and 28 is paid for by uh, uh, the homeless service provider funding network, which is the Rise Up for Homes. And you've seen that more now. The, the street signs, the, right. the Rise Up for Homes. So, uh, but so th- the, these are people who don't qualify otherwise because they're still... What, well, they, they, I, I'm not sure that they don't qualify. They just may not want to qualify. Okay. Uh, they may not want to be indoors until they have to be indoors. They may not... They may not be available. There may not be housing available for them, and so they're outside where we're, and the, and they make a personal choice to come in to the overflow shelter. And 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 you, I want Peter to be able to finish about the the overflow shelter and, and what he was sharing. But one of the problems that also exists is that if you get services, and some of these folks need some intense case management between substance abuse, mental health issues, uh, you know, other struggles that they may have just being able to maintain. Some people can't even maintain a checkbook. They, you know, do all that. So you get into a program, and, you know, a housing first model is what HUD wants. So you get these folks from homelessness, you get them in a case management situation where they're being housed first, and that program might carry them for a year or two years. I think, I think the longest they can go in some of these programs is two years. But if they didn't learn anything, and if that case management is has been what's keeping them safe in a secure place in a home, in an apartment, and then all of a sudden it stops, we have had more than once where somebody loses that apartment because they couldn't maintain the rent, they couldn't maintain their responsibilities in, in doing some of these things. They may not have gotten the, the, the occupation that they need and their disability Maybe they get disability. Maybe they're on some other kind of support. But all of a sudden, they don't have that that safety net. They're back out on the street. And that's where sometimes you've got a cynical population out there because now they criticize the, the, the way it's worked. Nobody cares about us. You know, we, you know, we don't have the help. Why am I bothering coming in for the shelter? Why am I bothering to do this? It, you know, I'm just going to lose it again. And, and you hear that conversation more than once. Uh, it, it's a difficult place, and, and, it's a, and it's difficult for us to really stop to consider what's the right balance. You know, they're the people that could end up getting up on their feet if they had a little bit more oomph going on. On the other hand, there's people that may need the support a lot more than just a year or two. Uh, You know, people with substance abuse issues, it can take years to overcome. Uh, And I I would just interject here that for folks that are living in poverty, folks that are experiencing these crises or any kind of trauma, it it just takes one small item to to cause a domino effect in their life. If we have in in our lives, I would dare say, you know, something, uh, you know, these are challenges and we're able to, you know, work with our own support network and our social capital and, and to move forward through things, they can be devastating. Something that uh, the average person might find, uh, you know, uh, something that they can overcome more easily, uh, folks can find devastating and it can absolutely turn someone's life upside down. Yeah, if you have a support network, you can go through just about anything. If you don't, so, so one of the things that we talk about here is, is, and we focus it, we focus on the homeless, homelessness, right? That, that's that's the focal point. 
but but uh, I'm oversimplifying it. But, but homelessness is is the result of some type of, and for want of a term, transaction. Um, in a lot of cases, it's addiction. In a lot of cases, it's domestic abuse. It could be mental health. Um, in some cases, which is a which is a minority, is financial. You've you've lost the job. You lost the apartment. You lost it. Those folks are easier to house than those with other problems because those problems, unless those problems go away, you're going to be into a homeless cycle. Those that lost a job for financial reasons want to work, and if we can get them into an income stream, then they can probably sustain the house again. They, they were able to sustain it until this transaction took place. Um, we saw that in 2008. We saw it in 1999. My, my fear, editorializing, is we're moving towards another economic side. Um, and when that does, we'll have additional issues in homelessness um, that may not be you know, uh, addiction-related or mental health-related, wherever it happens to go. But, uh, but so, so when you talk about homelessness, um, my education from these folks is there are many paths to homelessness. And if you just simply give somebody a home, you haven't solved, you really haven't solved the cycle. Uh, you, you may enable somebody for a little while, but you probably haven't solved the cycle. And you need to get to the root. Uh, whatever the root cause was that led to, to the homelessness, um, the, um, it's not called the career center anymore. What are they calling it? Mass hire or That's something? High. Mass hire. Uh, becomes an, an integral part. And you move down the economy because of the jobs, wherever we have to go. And then Jack and I have had some of these conversations about, well, what is a sustainable wage job to pay for homelessness? You know, I mean, to pay for your rent and things like that. That's another piece. You know, I mean, if you're working 40 hours at Burger King, you're probably not able to afford that apartment. So where does it all go? So there's multiple pieces of that. A lot of the uh, HSPN agencies work with issues that aren't necessarily economic. They, they're, they're back on domestic abuse. They're on, they're on uh, the addiction issues. They're on the mental health issues. Uh, you watch these people uh, as counselors um, struggling and they, they live for the success. And, and I don't know what those percentages are, but it doesn't sound like it's really high percentages of success from where it happens to go. Where other folks from uh, mass higher career, they you know if they can get somebody into another job, they see that success as to where it goes. So so, but we use homelessness as the point in time count um, from where some of this stuff goes. But that's not the. It would be nice if everybody had a place to go, but it doesn't mean they're going to keep the place they went to, and that's <laughs> a real. That's a, that, that was a shocker to me uh, when it when I realized that. Yes, we put somebody in, a, in an apartment for six months. Seventh month, they're on the street. They, they didn't have any. They didn't have the means to be the, able to take care of that. The, the biggest question I have is: is um, I've been coming to these editorial boards for many years, and you, you guys have come in, and um, it seems like there's a lot of p programs now that we haven't had in the past. But are we making progress with homelessness, or or is it just, um, or is it just something a, a kind of problem that? This is a social ill that you will always have, like like Jesus says, the poor you always, you have, always with you. have the poor with you. So, so is this just um, 
a part of human nature that 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 we have a Christian or, or whatever religion you have responsibility to address, or is it possible to make progress so that's not as big a problem? Well, let's let's really stop to consider because that, that that's where we get into philosophical issues and everything else. The bottom line is there's not enough jobs for everybody that can work. You know, even though we're in a place of prosperity at the moment, uh, for whatever reason you want to consider. Uh, for the last few years, more jobs have been put on and everything else. But if you have folks that have issues, whatever they are, and you have some difficulties that are going on, being able to get a living wage job, if I'm an employer and I'm looking for folks to be employed, I'm looking for people with resumes and everything else. You know, everybody says they don't want to work. They don't care. They're bums. They're just living on the streets. They're, you know, they, you know, they have substance abuse issues. You know, uh, you know, heck, I got an aunt that's crazy, but she could hold on to the job. We got everybody that has all these thoughts and processes. But the bottom line is, you, you're never going to have 100% employment. That's just not going to happen. It just, there isn't enough out there. And you're never going to have uh, everybody that is employed always with the capability of being able to afford what's going on. New Bedford over the last few years, depending on you know what situation you're in, you think we've either done real well and profits of you know uh, apartments have gone up, and so if you're a landlord, you think, hey, we are able to get better rents and everything else. But now you have those folks that are on the opposite end of the spectrum; they can't afford as much, so now they got more of a struggle, which puts them more on that line where they could be a failure. But Almost everybody believes that we're probably heading into a recession in the next year or two. Folks that invested in some of these properties around here or in other places, that probably paid a little bit more because of the prosperity that we are in. Now, all of a sudden, if rents start to drop and things, now you've got challenges both at the top of the spectrum, people that have, and those down at the bottom, people that don't have. And you got that loss. The difficulty is being able to train everybody takes money. I've seen where thousands of dollars have come into workforce training, but we're able to train 20 people. Those 20 people need some kind of support to stay in the training if you're talking about folks like this that need to be able to stay in long enough to get the confidence in themselves, to be able to have the, the to learn what they can do, to be able to have a living wage job. But when you have the ebbs and flows of society and the ebbs and flows of the economy, and you have the struggles in yourself that has to be maintained, it has to be corrected, has to be helped, that's when it's always going to have these kind of situations, Jack. And like I said, I think sometimes uh, politicians and society itself would almost rather ignore the problem than tackle the problem. Johnson tackled the problem with great society, okay, with all that he did. And to this day, we still argue about it, you know, whether, you know, that just enabled people or we should have just let people die. I, I don't understand the thought process. Well, what do the numbers show? Are we making progress with it or is it getting worse? Well, I think that there is progress being made, but I think there's always still challenges because you still have the folks that think people need to help themselves. And that's all fine and dandy until they're in that situation and they realize it's not so easy to do. I think there is more that's being done. But at the same time, I think there's more struggles that are out there. I went to L.A. this year for the first time in my life. Uh, I went to a conference down in uh, Newport Beach. and My wife and I figured, well, it's probably the only time we're ever going to get out here. So we did one of those tourist tours, you know. The thing is, is as much as I'm seeing all the sights, 
the thing that was blowing my mind, right around the corner from the La Brea Tar Pits and the new opera house that's going up, it's going to be shaped like a ball. You know, millions of dollars being poured in. All these wonderful sites, but it wasn't two blocks away. I'm looking at the sidewalk that has tent after tent after tent. They got more homeless people on two blocks than we've got in this whole city. And when I was talking to the, the, the tour guide, and then I was talking to an officer about it, because, you know, it, I only do tours so long, and then I start doing uh, social policy, I guess. And I started asking, I says, do you guys move these folks along? You know, like here, if we found that, find an encampment, we go and we get them moved. Uh, that's what the city wants to do is move them along. They said as long as they're not causing trouble and as long as they're able to keep things straight, he says, we have too many and there's not enough places, not enough help. And so literally tents, literally people wrapped in towel, uh, in blankets on the sidewalk. I went to New Orleans for a conference <coughs> that, that we spoke at on the opiate, uh, um, opiate addictions and came out of uh, the, the Marriott that had twenty five a room where 2,500 of us was there for the conference. Biggest place I've ever been in for a conference, right? 2,500 people. And yet you walk out the street. We have two streets, two literally two streets from Canal Street on one of their major roads. And you got homeless right there on the sidewalk sleeping. You know, it is everywhere. And is there something being done? Yes. But I think sometimes we change the definitions and we allow more to fall through the cracks. I'm interested in the idea of thinking of kind of homelessness as a, as a, as a disease. And putting people in, in a shelter is taking ibuprofen for the headache instead of treating the cause, you know, taking, stamping out the infection. What... I guess what is most needed to address the root cause? Is it more mental counseling? Is it addiction treatment? Is it a combination of both? What what what's the most needed? You're right, but I, you 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 are absolutely correct. The the overflow shelter is the ibuprofen. Just get them off the streets. Let's try to keep them alive to the point where where the treatments can be made available. But again, I don't deal with it. But what I hear is. Treatment is only going to work when you're ready for treatment. So at, at what point in time is that? One of the things the overflow does is let's keep them alive until hope, hopefully. It's not a guarantee they will ever seek treatment, but maybe if they're in there and they, this is the night they decide they want treatment. Uh, I mean, maybe that, that's really what it is. So, so overflow is different than sheltering. Okay. So is, over, it, is enough treatment available though? So, so in, in terms of in terms of uh, you know your comment about uh, moving folks on and how do we how do we do that? Um, it's true that there are um, there are uh, heightened needs for all of these things. We need more money in mental health counseling. There is a need for uh, greater you know uh, greater resources in that greater resources in substance abuse counseling. But what the federal government and federal policy tries to do and, and HUD's plans is to rapidly rehouse people out of shelter. Not only because, well, people just don't want to live in a shelter. Who would want to live in a shelter? You want to get folks housed suitably and safely and sustainably in a, as quickly as possible so that they can then address in housing that they can be in 
they can then address those issues that encumber their lives in any number of ways. It is easier um, and more long-lasting if you are in your own housing, in your own setting, to address those issues rather than being in a shelter setting. So that's something that has been recognized as a best practice, and that's something we try to do is to, is to do that. HUD has then put money behind that and not only tries to put money in homeless prevention to keep people where they are and to help them sustain in a long way, but rapidly rehouse, and it's actually called rapid rehousing. I know and Catholic Social Services that. has been make doing that. Are we making progress then? Are people getting yes, rapidly rehoused, yeah. or is it... Or are the numbers growing so fast yeah. that we can't keep up? Uh, well, we actually have um, and, and another uh, uh, program and directive uh, from the federal government is that we have this coordinated entry system where everybody comes through this single point and you give that call to the 1-800, I'm sure you've seen the 1-800 homeless number. Um, you make that call and then folks will take that call. They make a determination through a series of questions about whether or not you're actually experiencing homelessness at that moment or if you might be because you're about to lose your housing or you can't pay your rent, whatever the situation is. But we find more often than not that there's a tremendous amount of people that can, uh, for which we use diversion and diversion being here are all the different ways we can help you to either immediately get out of homelessness or to avoid homelessness altogether. And so that's been a huge uh, benefit within the community in helping people. They get hundreds and hundreds of calls a month uh, from New Bedford and from Fall River and the, the balance of the county um, to get people to a point where they can actually ask those questions and say, okay, we need to just get you into housing very, very quickly. And some folks will go into rapid rehousing and they will use those dollars to do that and to move people. So they avoid the shelter system as it is. Bear in mind that in Massachusetts, we are a right to shelter state and that as such, the Commonwealth is the one that handles families and homelessness. So that's why in New Bedford, you see, we have, we talk a lot about the Sister Rose Shelter run by Catholic Social Services. So we have a male, individual male shelter and an individual female shelter at the Grace House as part of that Sister Rose network. We have family shelters. But you cannot just walk in as a family and say, I, you know, I need help and go to Harbor House or go to any of these places. Uh, and Catholic Social Services run some of those as well. You have to go through the state system. So it puts another layer of challenge on that. If you're a family or if you're just a mom with a kid saying, I got to find something now. And you call that 1-800 number, say, well, you, you got to call the DHCD number and do that. So, it, you know, when you're living in trauma and when you're just trying to get your get up to school in warm clothes and get them fed and you know even if you've got a splitting headache it doesn't matter because you have to do this okay now you're going to call this number and that number is just ring 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 or you got to leave a message and wait for that person to call back and oh yeah I'm supposed to get a job I've got to get my kid in daycare you know those things can e easily you know add up and everything so you know we try very hard and the folks at the 1-800 number do try to you know navigate a little bit of that and provide some you know, case management to help folks that, you know, in order to avoid going to shelter or what could we do or where did you stay last night or, you know, might this be a resource for you and, and to really help to, you know, raise the shutters on some of those opportunities for people to avoid that in the first place. But to your, to your point, yes, there can always be, um, you know, we need greater help with those resources and greater help with um, the amount of money that, that flows into that for this area. Um, the, I, I do want to just say in terms of the, the data and the numbers, from the 2018, 
we have decreased by 15% the number of people that came out of the point in time count from compared with like 2016. So those numbers did come down. So we, we, you know, we have seen that. Does the needle move far enough, fast enough? No. Do challenges arise in different ways? Yes. But we do see positive movement on a number of things. We see, unfortunately, family homelessness ticking up ever so slowly. Um, we've seen a, a few less with, uh, you know, mental illness and substance abuse are the two uh, indicators uh, prevalent by far and above for years and years. Those numbers have just slightly ticked down, but really nothing to even, you know, report about because they're, they're just not enough and it might give people the false impression that, oh, we're doing great, right. you know, because we, we need to continue going in that direction because those are far and above. But domestic violence, uh, even though the number of, of women that are homeless because they are in immediate danger and seeking escape from domestic violence situations, that number may not be as high as those with substance abuse or the, but I can guarantee you that the, if you look at just the number of women who are experiencing homelessness and how many have experienced domestic violence as part of the trauma package in their life, that's a much, much higher number. And that contributes to it. So all of these things contribute to that. And all of those kinds of resources play great value into the overall picture. Jeff, to, to your question is, are we, are we, will it ever end? Or, or are we seeing success? One of the problems with numbers is that it's a number. The, the cohort behind the number, right? Um, there is individual successes with the cohorts, right? With some of the folks that were in the 2016, uh, whatever it is. But but the um, but but the trough gets filled by the next year by mm-hmm. by some by somebody else, whatever it might be. Uh, it could be it could be prescription addiction that, that ultimately, and we we have those folks down at the overflow shelter and in the shelter. Who uh, wonderful jobs, made tons of money, owned the boats. The addiction took a lot of time to get rid of all those assets. They are now in the count. All right, they are now in the count. Um, but uh, their homelessness is going to be that way unless the other pro- uh, program. One other success story we have is with the veterans. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we th- that was a major push several years ago. Uh, those numbers uh, were, were certainly down. Yeah. There were resources that were made specifically available to veterans. Yeah. What, what was it, it was called? Well, zero. It, it zero. Function, functional functional zero. zero. So in the city of New Bedford, we actually hit functional zero. And what that means is, uh, and the reason we, we put the caveat of functional zero, you can't say, well, there are no veterans who are experiencing homelessness in New Bedford. But what we can say is that every single veteran that's crossed everyone's path anywhere within the system has been offered housing, has been offered the opportunity for shelter, has been offered those services. They may have said, yeah, not for me. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this. Well, you know, we can't count it as zero, but it's, it's a functional zero. We've, we've reached out and hit and touched every single veteran within the community. Now, the minute you hit functional zero, and that's what everybody in the country is trying to just, you know, uh, strive for, you then have to start maintaining it. So that, you know, all of a sudden two other people, you know, uh, appear and everything, and all of a sudden you're no longer a functional zero. So, you know, but we're very close to that line. I mean, we have a number of, of veterans and great veterans programs. We have multiple programs that are doing great work and treating folks, and so they're in the system and doing that. Um, so we have, uh, we've had great success with that, and we've achieved that functional zero. 
And but now it, we but, work to maintain but it, that. It, but every month you get new veterans that have yeah. been dis, discharged, yeah. right? So um, and new problems. And whatever the first exactly. So 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 the uh, you know it's it's uh, to liken it to a major league sport. The, the, the feeder program is going to continue, <laughs> right? It's going to yeah. continue as long as we have uh, cheap opiates and fentanyl, and as long as we have veterans being discharged with you know incredible issues. Um, the feeder programs are there. So of the population, one of the things that we try to do is: Do you have receptive programs that work for these folks? Doesn't mean it's going to work on those folks, but it's going to work for them when they when they ask for the help. Uh, and and New Bedford, that is successful in New Bedford. And I guess if you, you know, if you didn't find some successes. Why would you continue in right. the program, right? The, the bottom line, I think, for us is, especially uh, looking at it as chair, I think that New Bedford does an incredible job. Uh, truly, uh, from the funding that comes in, which isn't enough, but the funding that comes in to the work that's being done from all the nonprofits, the churches, the the uh, civic groups, uh, there is a compassionate component in this community that is, uh, sometimes it's not only heartwarming, it's it's tear-producing. Um, but the bottom line, and, and, and quite frankly, our, our problem here in this community, though it's bigger than a, than in a Cushnet or a Marion or a, a local town, uh, is minuscule compared to some of the big urban areas. That also is one of the traps that happens to us is that a lot of times a lot of the more funding goes to these large urban areas, the Bostons and the, and everything else. They they get a lot more funding probably per person than we do. Um, and the thing is, is if our numbers move just three people, it's it's already like ten percent, five percent. So so the 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 figures uh, are almost mind bending in being able to do that. Um, I know you guys are doing a story on the Veterans Transition House and the struggles. You know, when you when you stop to consider what they're going through, what they're dealing with, thank God we have this organization in our community. You know, I can't even imagine what would happen without them and the Catholic Social Services and the Packers and the Stepping Stones and everything else. But I'm willing to bet you that if you talk to each one of them, they tell you about the gaps that they're trying to fill that they can't, the people that they uh, want to be able to continue to support, but but uh, the struggle occurs, whether it's through a fault of theirs or, or no fault of anybody's, it's just the circumstances that evolve. But if there's, this community has done an incredible job, and, and not just because she's sitting here, because I really don't like Jen, but uh, the, 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 the bottom line is the, the work that she does uh, and being able to uh, herd all the different groups. I don't know if you've ever made it to a homeless service providers network. It's the one, or it's the one meeting that I go to, and I go to a lot of meetings uh, that we have standing room only. Uh, we have at least forty people that show up to this meeting at the Office of Housing Community Development, and everything from people wanting to know more to the different agencies and everything else. And uh, and and there is a hard look at ourselves we allow people to ask open questions sometimes they're difficult questions but it causes us to self-examine and it causes us to take a look at things 
uh, I do get frustrated with uh, the different things we had uh, we've got a consultant in helping us with with uh, taking a look and review and we're talking about the different contracts and performance and, and performance and evaluations and 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 uh, as they're discussing well this is one of the things that they're going to score you on but this is only one point so don't worry too much about that because this one's more points and I'm saying that's the problem we have with society today whether it's this issue or any other issue we reduce people to numbers and when you reduce it to numbers you know on a piece of paper as to how you're going to score them you lose the human flesh and blood that's on the street and all of a sudden this person don't count because they're only worth one point on the on the test you know what i'm saying and quite frankly every value every life should be valued cared for and uh, the work of this continuum is is incredible people like Peter Muse who steps up and not only puts in his personal time as a businessman has nothing to do with any of the social though he's probably got more social service in him than than, than some of the people in social services you know and it goes right through his family it goes you know through his business we need more business people that will step up rather than complaining about them homeless people that are in front of my stores we need them to stand up and say hey how can we help because this is a community that we're all living together. You know, a rising tide does not float all boats. A rising tide sometimes sinks a boat when it's anchored in the wrong place. You know, you got to do something. Can I just ask about the actual point in time count, um, how it works? So you have, like, families who are at Harbor House, you know, in an mm-hmm. in a, in a, in a, in a ongoing situation. You have the homeless shelter. You have the people who are being trained for jobs there, the people who come in for the overflow shelter um i suppose you still have some homeless camps like like, mm-hmm. like in back of um the shopping center there in the north end and, mm-hmm. and and stuff so at the point in time count you go to all those different places yeah. to count and uh, yeah i'll take that so there are actually two sides of of uh, what we're talking about the point in time count is that more familiar going out yeah. and doing the count we also have what's called a hick a housing inventory count and that's really the second half of when we're talking about point in time. It's not as popular, but it's equally important. That housing inventory count, we already began doing that with our organizations. Anyone who receives funding through our office, because we're the federal conduit for all of that uh, money for continuum of care and emergency solutions grant money, we go through a, a process with them, a survey process, and we get counts of their beds, counts of who they're serving, all of that data and everything, and we just sort of confirm that every year. So we have a very broad spreadsheet that has all of that data for every emergency, transitional, and permanent supportive housing program that we have and that receives that funding. That permanent supportive housing um, is a tremendous sector of what we have. Those are folks who had to have been homeless at some point, um, before, prior to entering. They had to be homeless at that moment of entering to order in order to qualify, as well as having some sort of disability. So those funds, uh, that is all captured in that HIC, that housing inventory count. The point in time count is both an unsheltered count, so it's the ones actually going out on the street, but we also take the first two parts of that HIC. So we take the people that are considered sheltered only those in emergency shelters, as you've just named, like Harbor House and uh, those other programs, as well as those in transitional 
like the network house, the veterans transition house, and a couple of those programs. So those programs that fall under the ESG and transitional housing programs, they're part of the PIT. So they sort of overlap, if you will, the HIC and the PIT sort of overlap. So there are two different efforts on that. The night of that point in time count, all of the shelter staff, all of the people in transitional housing, they are all chronicled, counted, and done. We have an inventory of how many beds exist. That night, we count how many people are in those beds, and we get that that data as well. So it's the agency and shelter staff that do that piece, but when we talk about the event and the volunteers and going out, it's really about the unsheltered uh, portion of that, to which we also have uh, a small resource event to help to encourage people to come in, give them meals, give them supplies, whatever they need to, you know, as a, an incentive and as well as a thank you for folks that are actually participating in it and in need of those resources. So we have agencies that are there and will establish a presence and agency representatives that also go out with volunteers into the community. But that's the thing to bear in mind is that there's sort of an overlap between this pit and hick and the data that we produce um, always reflects both of those numbers. And, and, and as you can imagine, um, during the course of the year, these agency folks uh, who work with the clients, they got a pretty good sense of where the encampments are, who's staying over, who's staying at McDonald's until it closes, and all, all the the majority of the various places you're going to find some of these folks for the count mm-hmm. 24 hours. You're going you're to be able to find them um, because there is already a team built out of the HSPN that would work on outreach in an encampment or wherever it happens to be. So there's some folks out there that already have connections and maybe a little bit of yeah. confidence in the folks that are going to show up to do a count. Because one of the things that I, I, I still don't know how it would work is if, if you're the homeless person and someone comes up to you and starts to count you, right? <laughs> when I say count you, it's asking you a bunch of questions. Um, it's not... Think of your mental state right now, but think of what their mental state is when somebody wants to ask them some questions. Um, I don't know how that takes place. I, I don't. I don't know where that all is unless you have some some well, people that are confident. You know, that's a that's a good point and a lovely segue. Um, we also do. I a, do this. I set you up so well. That was beautiful. I'd like to tee off now. Yeah. I set um, you up too. This is a thank you. One. You're also a wonderful. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what we do is we do conduct a training, and we'll be doing that next Monday evening for all the folks that have signed up to volunteer. And so we do that at PACA, and we'll do a one-hour training. We, it includes a role play, so that folks get a sense of here's how you are, um, here's how you approach people, here's how you're respectful, because this all starts with compassion and respect. Uh, this is not about just generating numbers. I don't care about just having the report at the end of the night. We need to have excellent data and we need to have high quality information, but we do that never at the risk of uh, insulting someone or at the risk of dehumanizing um, uh, uh, someone in any way. So we're very, very um, uh, careful about that and profoundly aware of you know the value of those conversations and how that is, how that, as Peter said, the transaction uh, occurs in that. So we will conduct that. We do have, uh, we have a, a survey monkey device that we've sent out to people to encourage volunteerism. And we have uh, a significant size spreadsheet where we have sort of matri- created a matrix of all of the sort of known locations where folks have been, where we find things, where they're the most likely to be. And we've targeted that as part of the methodology um, about where we will look, at what times we look, who goes out there, 
teams go out, so it's not just an individual or two people who have never done this before. These are well-experienced folks. Folks that have not done this before are with well-experienced folks, a team leader who will actually conduct the sure. interview so that these things are sort of modeled for people. And So no one's left out there just sort of saying, I don't know, you want a backpack? Uh, yeah. You know, here you but go. Just, so, as, from my experience as a reporter, just parachuting in is not the way to right. be optimum right. in terms of getting right. stories. Like. Uh, so we try to yeah. we try to honor the you know honor folks and and do uh, it's just as important for us to honor the experience of the person that we hope to count and, and capture their information as it is to honor the experience of the people that are volunteering um, because there's a lot of information and there's a lot of value in understanding the breadth of these issues because it is homelessness it is about addiction it is about poverty it's about so many things and so many people you know are a part of this and it's an incredibly valuable experience so we honor that road as well and we look to some of our key team leaders to you know help to to make that liaison with people and to do that yeah. in, a, in a way that makes if you, sense if you think about it from the volunteer perspective um, as david said my, my wife is the volunteer coordinator for the overflow shelter which means that uh, uh six o'clock we serve dinner so she's getting volunteers there to cook the dinner and serve and then clean up and and be gone. They're not professionals that stay. And and the conversations are not clinical conversations. It's, it's uh, you know, you do. Uh, there is a good number of those folks that have volunteered for the point in time count. There's a good number of those folks that also volunteer for the New Bedford Connect. Th these are things that some folks feel they want to be involved, but they're not clinical specialists. And they also want to stay away from uh, adversarial situations uh, and we need to provide them these opportunities and this is the old Brett commercial you know uh, two people volunteer and they go home and they say what a wonderful experience they had now they'll bring two more and two more that's how we grow that part of the community we need to help these folks they cannot be helped there's not enough professional help one of the best examples I think is when um, the new uh, uh, center opened up, the hospital opened up the uh, mental health center in Dartmouth. X number of beds. We couldn't use all the beds because we didn't have enough professional people to be able to fill all the beds and deal with all the clients. It's like going into a restaurant and you have to wait 20 minutes, but you look over there and there's three empty tables. Well, why can't I sit at those tables? We don't have enough wait staff, right? Whatever. It's, it's all the economics of where it goes. But if we can pull volunteers in, something at the point in time count, something serving meals, something at New Bedford Connect, and, and they quite frankly get that rewarding experience. Um, we, 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 build, we build an army for whatever we might need to, go on to help out. Uh, and it's not just giving money, right? Uh, these folks, uh, they, they, there's a lot of them that contribute to Rise Up for Homes. But it's more than that. It's it's giving their time. And as, as we've found out, some of these folks are retired nurses. They're retired uh, uh, mental health workers. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they don't want to be doing this from 8 to 5, but they don't mind the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And, my God, you know, valuable people, valuable experiences uh, for others. So and that's why one of the themes that we have, too, is like we said, both volunteers and folks who can get everyone counts and that's the theme yeah. you know thematically it just makes absolute sense everyone does count uh, by way of wrapping up what, what would you say to people because uh, I, I just because I encounter them all the time who would say 
you know what, this is just a responsibility program. Those people that do good is they're trying to help, but really it's just either you take responsibility for your life, you don't pick yourself up by your bootstraps. What would you say to those people? Because when, when we write an editorial, I'm, I'm, the way I feel is that I'm talking to people who agree with me, but I'm also talking to people who don't agree with me, and they call me, and they say, well, once again, you're just, you know, you, you, you need jerk liberals. You're trying to help people that don't want to help themselves. What, 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 what do you say to... And I, and I think I think it's a valid criticism. I'm sure we've all experienced that. I mean, I have, you know, we, we all have friends that have said that to us as well. I think that uh, one of my first responses is always, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Some people don't even have the bootstraps. Um, some people don't have that and have never even been shown how to handle that or put the boot on. So, I mean, there's, to, to carry that metaphor, I mean, that's, that's a piece of it for a number of people. I think the other thing is if you've not had the privilege of working with someone who's gone through these roads, who's gone down these roads and have seen the successes that can come out the other side and seen and witnessed and be a part of the compelling stories that we've seen. I mean, I've had the privilege of doing that and, and been able to see families move from absolute nothing and having every possible trauma thrown at them and to see them struggle, struggle and move through and, and finally come out to a point where they're stabilized and happy and have joy. And I've seen this not once or twice, but many, many times on that. So that, uh, it, it's transformative for me and it gives me enough to keep away the jaded meter and to keep that low. There are times that, that I absolutely personally, uh, I can get frustrated and say, do we need to put more money on this again? Shouldn't we be doing this instead? So I think that's a very healthy point of conversation. I think it's healthy as long as we're constructive in that conversation. I think many of us have, uh, we're challenged sometimes by our ability to have civil dialogue in these things. And I think that that's really where much of the struggle is. As long as we can look at this and try to cast aside our own judgment. I have judgment in my heart. I judge people all day long. I hate myself for it, but that's what we do. We're human. And I think to the point that we have more of these experiences, and hopefully that mitigates some of my judgment and it helps me to understand more and to be more compassionate with others. So I think that the ability to transfer that into a dialogue that's helpful in the community at a public policy level, I think that's where you begin. Very well said. Very well said. And, and she does judge because I've been judged. <laughs> you know, I'm judging right uh, now. So it's, it's, that's the whole point. Um, quite frankly, I'm anything but a liberal knee-jerk or any other type. Um, but if you have any kind of compassion in your heart at all or in your head, it, we would take the time to not just judge one another immediately, you know, and you cannot label everybody the same way. Are there folks out there that have put themselves, because of their lifestyle, because of their life choices in bad situations? Of course. Are there people that are out there that that continue to make wrong choices, uh, are quote-unquote lazy, uh, yes. Uh, let's be honest with ourselves. There, there are. But that's not the predominance of what's out there. There are people that have, by no fault of their own, continue in a struggle that they would rather not be in. And, you know, uh, you know I love the, the, the whole argument, well, those are just do-gooders that uh, just want to do everything. Well, that's fine. Until it's your family, your friends, yourself. And then all of a sudden the equation changes totally. Then it's society don't care about us. It, you know, we're throwaway people. You know, I, we actually had somebody say that on one of our opiate uh, uh, outreaches 
where because of the work that we had done in going back to visit him, it, it, this man was crying. It was it was an NPR. He he actually is on an NPR interview, saying that you know we're throwaway people. You know nobody cares about us, and that's what happens when you've been in a struggle for too long, um, and so you lose hope. Uh, the fact is, <coughs> we a good society, not even a great one, but a good one, is going to care for everybody in it, and we get measured by our compassion and everything else. I just sent you an article that ran in the New York Post. Uh, Not the greatest, uh, you know, it's not the New York Times, but this was an incredible article that I sent to quite a few people. Uh, Not sure if I sent it to you, John. Uh, But it was about how New York has to look to Seattle and what it can learn about its homeless issue. I sent it to you. I don't have anybody else's email, so you can send it to whoever else you want. And I'll make sure you get it if I never sent it to you. But it talks about that very thing that you said, the do-gooders. Uh, it actually breaks it down to the people working with this issue are broken into four different parts. Uh, the fact of the matter is it's not just the do-gooders, it's everyone. And the answer is usually always somewhere in the middle. It's never on the extremes. Um, and, and so that's what we have to do is if we're going to make change that's lasting and uh, can solve issues. It's going to be when we all work together. Those that have to examine themselves that they might be doing too much, but those that also need to examine themselves that they're doing nothing. You know, that's what's going to make change. I think there's, I think one of the uh, items that Ken alluded to it, David did as well. The, uh, the, the Homeless Service Provider Network, the, the Continuum of Care, that's the brand name for the Continuum of Care. What is it, 15 of those around the state? COCs? 16. 16. Uh, they different brands. The, the one here in New Bedford is considered high performing. Now, you know, one of the best in the state. The folks that we have come down be at the federal or state level marvel at the fact that you can call a meeting, as David said, and forty people are in the room. I mean, they, they just don't see that. And uh, and everybody in the room is client centric, right? Even though they may be competing for other funds together, but it's client centric. Uh, it works. It works very well. Um, my uh, my involvement is a whole weird story how I got involved, um, but but nevertheless, um, one of the things that I like about this organization is that we will go out and question ourselves and and bring in folks to a strategic plan and say, uh, is what we're doing today working for today? It did work before. But HUD changed the rules. Somebody changed the rules. We got we got uh, an opiate situation going on now that we didn't have ten years ago. We got all. Are we still doing the best we can do for today's problem? Um, not a lot of nonprofits do that, um, and I, I think it's the to their own demise. You you got to stay current as to where it goes. It also I go back to Jack's question: Is it working? Are we are we going to ever be done with homelessness? I can't see that. I, I can't see that we'll ever be done. And again, it's because you know no one shuts off the waterfall. It's just coming. Um, it just it just keeps going. You got to have the programs available though for when that next group comes in. And then you know I don't. I'm going to leave you with this and say you know we, we we do a great job for this group of homelessness. And you know what? You get extremely taxed when something comes out of nowhere i.e. the Puerto Rican situation last year, okay? All of a sudden, they're here. And the school system is taxed. 
the agencies are taxed uh, because they come into the program. Um, and yeah, it's, so what might happen? You know, uh, you don't know. Uh, but nevertheless, if you don't have existing programs that you can morph for the time being, you can do this or whatever, or you don't have the folks available to at least sit in a room. I wasn't part of that, but there was a group. They would meet frequently. We would meet once a week. Uh, to say, you know, I mean, it might not be a long-term issue, but when you got people here, it's an issue here. Uh, how do you address all that? If you don't have organizations like the HSPN or funding opportunities with Rise Up for Homes, I mean, you just can't go to the city of New Bedford when all of a sudden these folks come and say, we need $50,000. That doesn't happen, you know? And then you, you try to go to private businesses. It just, you know, you just don't get enough. So to have the organizational opportunities in existence uh, is huge. This city has them. Can always use more, but at least we have them. Uh, and and we're, we're recognized for that. But it's not, it's, all of this is a pat in the back. It doesn't send you more money. You know, people come down and say, wow, you guys are doing a good job. Thank you very much. It's recognized by professionals. Um, it doesn't shut the spigot off of the clients and guests coming into the system. I, I, don't, I don't know how to stop that. When that stops, the answer to the other question is, yes, there's no more homelessness. Well yeah. beyond us. I, I, don't, I don't mean to put out that I have the answer to the problem. No, no, you, but, you, no. but you asked the right question. You asked the right question. But I will say this, and, 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 I, and I am going to cut you off because I'm about to be late to a meeting with seven people that I called uh, in, in five minutes. Um, I, I do appreciate, you know, you, you made that statement, but I have uh, the support that South Coast Media has given us, both electronically and, and, and uh, in print, has been tremendous. You guys do good stories. You do hold people's feet to the fire. You, you do ask the hard questions at times, uh, sometimes questions with no answers. Um, but but the support that you give, and I think that's one of the reasons why we get a lot of people that come out and, and do these things. Um, and I thank you for even this time, because I know you usually try to keep it to an hour, and uh, we've been here for almost an hour and a half, and to the point where I'm, I'm saying, oh, I've got about 20 minutes to get out. Wait a minute, i got to get out of here now. Uh, but, I, but I do thank you, and I didn't mean to cut you off, but I literally do have to excuse myself now. So I did want to just add that uh, the group that we have working on the point-in-time count, and I will leave you with this and can send you anything electronically, um, it is a subcommittee of this Homeless Service Providers Network. We have about 15 people who have volunteered their time. We've been meeting once a week, every single week since November, to pull this particular event together. It's an outstanding group of people. I just sit and move paper. They are doing amazing things to put this together. We have um, a SurveyMonkey device in which people can uh, link on and register as a volunteer for this event. And once they are uh, registered, we're inviting them to a training. The training is actually this coming Monday, the 28th. It will be at PACA at 6 o'clock. It's a one-hour training. I had mentioned it earlier in my remarks, but that training is, uh, is critical. It's mandatory for everybody because we want to make sure everyone's on the same page when they go out and do this uh, for whatever their shift is they're reporting. But we welcome everyone uh, in the community to think about that and to participate. And uh, I have to say that the community has been extraordinarily generous. Um, 
in, uh, uh, in their donations uh, and the things that we're able to, uh, to give out and to make happen for folks on that day. So we're grateful for that and for the team uh, of amazing people from uh, agencies and community members putting that together. Thanks so Very much good. for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.